From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Hi, friends. It's here, the season finale of your favorite show, Lost Notes. And I'm ready for a vacation. I wonder, where does Grace Jones go on vacation? Does she just hop from one dimension to the next? Oh, man, I want to go dimension hopping with Grace Jones so bad. Mm, try me. Before I go on my vacation, though, you have to hear about Aisha Ali's incredible journey. I was a belly dancer. And the dance itself and the music, there was no question. I loved it. I was so enamored of it. I had been teaching to it and performing to it for almost a decade before I decided to go to the places where it's closer to the traditional dance. In the beginning, what drove me there was wanting to know the roots of the dance, what movements had changed or westernized it. I wanted it in its form before the myths and fantasies of the mysterious Orient. And I actually wasn't planning to go there to record more music. I already had recordings of the music. But little did I know that I would go and make better recordings. <laughs> Here's producer Arshia Fatimahak. I think Aisha's known as a dancer, but for me, she's much more than that. I think her contributions to the documentation of culture are really remarkable and pioneering. We'll follow Aisha from her childhood in Pittsburgh to the nightclubs of the swinging 60s Los Angeles to the banks of the Nile in Luxor, Egypt, and beyond. And along the way, she recorded hours and hours of rare and unheard music. We'll listen to some of that stuff. But she was on a quest to document cultures that were disappearing quickly. From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. It takes years for a dancer to develop a sense of, you know, in your muscles, what's coming next. And you exhibit it in the way you move before it even happens. And that's what enthralls the audience. I learned to really give in and feel the music and anticipate it, to understand what the musicians were doing and where they were going. And then once I learned, then there was no stopping me. Then it was a joy because it's beyond you. It's not something artistic. It's something innate, organic. It's a bond between the dancer, and the musician. And she is the visual representation of the lyrics and rhythm of the music. I first learned of Aisha because over the years I'd been doing my own field work in Southwest Asia and North Africa. And I'd been collecting records obsessively from those parts of the world. There were about four or five records that really got under my skin. They were all field recordings, and they were by this mysterious woman named Aisha Ali. 
I was so fascinated that in this sea of white male anthropologists, here was this solitary female figure who had gone out into the field in the 70s and done this all on her own, on her own label. So I decided to look her up and found a website. On the website, there was a number with a 310 area code, just half an hour from where I'm living in Los Angeles. And we met, and I started recording the story of her life. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My mother's family was Italian, and they didn't approve of my mother's selection of a man with an Arab name. So for years, we didn't know we were Arab. <laughs> we just knew that for some reason we weren't accepted in the family. And uh, it wasn't until I put two and two together with a classic name like Ali. <laughs> of course, I should have known because my grandfather wore a tabouche <laughs> and he decorated the house with Islamic tiles. He had paintings of Islamic themes. There was even a tapestry in the living salon with a dancing girl dancing on a carpet with all of these people sitting on the carpet around her, clapping and playing musical instruments. These things all fascinated me. I'm sure they influenced me. Since I was a little girl, my mother would give me a quarter, and I would go with my little boyfriend, and we would walk to the big avenue and spend the afternoon in the movie theater with Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie and like uh, Alibaba something and all those old Hollywood corny movies showing women wearing veils that went like this across their face, but you could see through them. <laughs> Still don't trust me. If I have misjudged you, princess, remember only that the slave girl I once held in my arms I loved truly. That's where I got my first images of what Arab women were like, and the whole romantic notion of the harem, where it was forbidden for men to go, and all the women had nothing to do all day but look beautiful and lounge around, <laughs> take baths, <laughs> and eat grapes. When I was 12 or 13, I my mother gave me Rimsky-Korsakov, Scheherazade, and I used to play it over and over and over and fantasize about it. I read all the Arabian Nights by Burton and anything I could get my hands on that was about the Middle East. And I read about women who had traveled and made maps and made friends with Arab nobility but they were English women. I knew that people thought of me as exotic, even though I'm all American, right? Second generation. But I was never accepted as that. And when I tell them that I was born in Pittsburgh, they laugh. So after years and years of those prejudices and being relegated to a certain group, <laughs> I decided, okay, if that's who I am, 
That's how I'm going to be. I'm going to be a professional Arab. I always knew I wanted to move to a warmer place. I wrote in my high school yearbook that I wanted to move to California and I wanted to travel. So when I finished high school, I was just turning 18 and I got on the bus and I traveled here on a Greyhound. It was 1960 when Aisha got on the bus that took her from Pittsburgh to LA. And I think as soon as she arrived, she was really struck by how cosmopolitan this city was. The thing that I best liked here was that suddenly I was no longer different. It was like a new kind of freedom. I felt like I fit in. There were exotic women. Some of them were Mexican. Some of them were Indian. Some of them were... Italian, French, Armenian. It was like a potpourri of nationalities. So I felt like I was where I belonged. Not long after arriving here, she started taking some acting and dance classes, and her roommate at the time was an aspiring young actor named Frank Langella. I met him in acting school, and I became his acting partner. And one day we were going to go out, He happened to pass by my bedroom while I was changing, and he saw that I had these long legs. And he said, oh, my God, (laughs) you're all legs. (laughs) You should be a dancer. We went out and we bought all these Arab records, and then we would give parties in my apartment, which was bare of any furniture, so we had plenty of room. And we didn't have money for food and stuff, so we would invite all these people and tell them to bring things. (laughs) And then I would dance. What were the records that you bought? One of them was called Flame of Araby Orchestra with Karaman. And I danced to that, and everybody thought I was so wonderful. (laughs) But it was sort of a combination of what I had learned in the primitive dance class and trying to make it fit with the Arabic music. But it was fun, and we believed in ourselves. So it worked. I had a job, and I became a draftsperson. And there was going to be a party for the engineers, and that night I met the president of the Arab student group. And he told me that there was going to be an international festival at UCLA, and the Arab students were going to have a belly dancer. But then I said, I'm a belly dancer. <laughs> so he thought this was wonderful. Here was a young Arab girl, and she, she'll perform. So one of the Arab students was Mustafa Akkad. And to make money, he would put on marhajans and haflas and rent some of the big nightclubs in Hollywood, like the Moulin Rouge 
or any big fancy nightclub. That was the days when they still had them the way they used to look back in the 40s. And I was hired because I was young and cute and Arab. (laughs) And that's where I got the feeling of the whole Arab culture of entertainment and music and dance. And I became an Arab because they right away embraced me and adopted me. And I felt like I finally belonged somewhere. When I started in Hollywood, the first place I danced was called the Torch Club on Hollywood Boulevard and Las Palmas. And it catered mostly to older men who would come in with their cigars and drink mataxa. And it was owned by a woman by the name of Helen Capello. And she was a tough woman. And she sort of looked at me sideways and she said, You have a costume? And I said, oh, yes, I have a very nice costume. And she said, I pay $15, but that's for good dancers. And I said, well, I'm not a good dancer, but I wouldn't work for less than $15. So she hired me. When I performed at the Torch Club and saw how the men treated me as an object. I really wasn't prepared for that. As I would dance by their table, they would reach out and pinch me or grab me and spit on silver dollars and slap them on my body. And I was offended. So I wasn't a very gracious dancer. I didn't smile and I wasn't happy in trying to please them. I kind of danced with a a chip on my shoulder. I stuck it out because the dance itself and the music, there was no question. I loved it. I adored it. And it took up all my energy and interest. I wanted to succeed. And I was going to stick it out until I got it right. But the scene at the cabarets was another story that I had to deal with. So in order to have the one thing, I had to contend with the audience and their reactions and the owners and how they treated me. But I learned to adapt and stuck to my guns that I would not relent and do anything that I didn't approve of. And somehow they accepted me that way. Whereas With other women, maybe they weren't so lucky. I just could never relate to being in the position where a man could tell me what I could not do or ask me to do something for him that I didn't want to do. At the end of the 60s, Aisha was looking beyond the cabaret circuit. She was teaching her own dance classes, She was making appearances on television shows, and she had already performed in a number of cities across the U.S. But I think what really inspired the next stage of her journey was hearing actual recordings from North Africa. (laughs) 
Through the dance community, she had gotten to know some people involved with the ethnomusicology department at UCLA. I was never an official student at UCLA. I was just there auditing classes and part of the scene for many, many years. I learned how to use a recorder and a microphone and all the things I would need to do field work. Plus, now I had access to these archives and I started collecting the music of the Benet Mazin's group. The early field recordings usually concentrated on a sampling of a particular instrument or a particular genre of music, almost as though no one would be interested in hearing the whole thing. (laughs) And I knew immediately that the way they were going about it was too clinical and cold. I was searching for the root, the real music, the real roots of the culture, of the dance. How did it evolve? Where did it come from? How do they actually dance in the places where it's closer to the genuine traditional dance? And that's where I got the idea that I want to go to Egypt and find that group and record them now to learn their dance to see how do they move to this music. to fund all this equipment and all the production costs by performing in Arab nightclubs to pay for my true love, which was the folk music and the folk dancing. I did all this on my own because I didn't want some institution to have control of whether it was published or shelved or... I wanted to present what I was looking for. My friend, who was working at a travel agency, arranged for me to have a ticket for $500 that took me from Los Angeles to Lebanon, from Lebanon to Syria, from Syria back to Lebanon to Egypt, and from Egypt to Algeria first, and then Tunisia and then Morocco and Spain. So I couldn't pass that up. So in 1971, Aisha took her first trip to Southwest Asia and North Africa. When I first got to Cairo, it was very difficult. The biggest advantage that I had was having an Arab name 
on my passport. And at the same time, it's an American passport. So people trusted me because I was Arab. <laughs> and at the same time, I had the freedom of an American. I traveled alone because in those days, not many people were eager to travel to the Middle East, <laughs> first of all, and secondly, because I could concentrate on what I was doing. Sometimes I had to really be pushy to get anything done, because if I left it up to the people that I became acquainted with, they just wanted me to drink tea and laugh and talk and relax with them. But I, you know, I wanted to be on the go. I wanted to be doing things. I wanted them to help me find this village or find that. And I had to really push and be unpleasant in order to accomplish that. I just couldn't be complacent. So I was armed with a Rolly 35 still camera and a Uher reel-to-reel tape recorder. And it's heavy, and I had to carry batteries, heavy-duty batteries, not just the one that comes with it. I had to have a more powerful battery, so I had a car battery, which is quite heavy. And I had to carry stacks of reel-to-reel 5-inch tapes, because a five-inch tape doesn't go that far. It was hard. <laughs> it was frustrating. So I can't say that I made these trips because I was having a wonderful vacation. <laughs> it, it was very stressful. And sometimes at night, at the end of the day, I would say, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why am I torturing myself? I don't know what it was, but it, I was driven. I was driven. The first time I went to Egypt and heard the real folk music, I was just overwhelmed because of the strength of the, the sounds of the mizmar and the neigh and all these instruments that go back for so many centuries of development that was something real. It wasn't something popular or commercial. It was something organic. And once I experienced that, phew, the rest was history. The Benat Mazen were from Upper Egypt, from the Thebes area, and they were a family of Nawar gypsies. But at the time, I didn't know the name and a family that I was staying with. They were pretty well educated, and the son was working at the Vatican office or something that was in Cairo, and he knew the actual name of the group and the tribe. And he wrote it down, and he said, you're looking for the Benat Mazin. And Benat means girls or girls of Mazin, daughters of Mazin. That was a magic thing to have that name, because then when I went to Upper Egypt, I found them right away. 
Aisha's contact in Luxor was a man who called himself simply El Baron. And El Baron was kind of a godfather type who you could call for anything you needed in Upper Egypt. Anything at all. He arranged for Aisha to not only meet the Banat Mazin, but to dance with them as well. And he told me that I would meet the Banat Mazin that night on the pier and to wait. He would come to the pier, he would see me there, and the musicians would be there because they were going to be performing for some French tourists on a ferry boat. So that night I went to the dock and there were all the girls, three of them. And the first thing I noticed was that these women looked like my family. <laughs> we all have these, you know, heavy lids and high cheekbones. And we have a look, and they had it, and I had it. We stood by while all the tourists were boarding and getting settled. And then the musicians got on, and then we got on, and then we took off and started floating down the Nile, and the music started, and we immediately started to dance together. And then when the night was finished, we took the tourists back to the shore. And then we went back out into the middle of the river in the middle of the night. And we turned off the engine and floated in the moonlight. And that combination of water and I, I don't know, the quiet of the night because it's late at night, there are no sounds from the city, it made like a perfect sound studio. my recordings were different from the ones preceding them is because I had had a different kind of intimate relationship in terms of being part of the performing group. Whenever I began a recording session, once I set up my mics and checked all the sound levels, I couldn't help myself, but I would begin dancing. The musicians started to smile and have fun which created a much more natural and lively piece. It was then that I realized that engaging with the musicians would be the best way for me to record my music, and that became my method from then on. What's important for posterity 
is to understand the real music that had taken centuries to develop, that has soul, that has all the emotions of humanity, and not the popular music for the taste of the wide audience for commercial reasons. We wanted to preserve what was real and what exemplified the culture. I've collected a lot of music over the period of 25 years, and I've produced six albums that went from LP to cassette to CD. But that music was only between the years of 1971 and 1977. So I have all these other years sitting in drawers. I don't see at this point the sense to go to the expense to produce it again, the way the music business is now. But I have this legacy of music. At least I can enjoy it. I still love it. I love to listen to it. I hear it now on this really, you know, high-tech sound systems, and I, and I hear the voices in the background that I didn't used to hear when, when the technology wasn't so well-developed, but now I can hear them talking and saying things, and I can remember the whole scenes, and it carries me back. Today's episode was produced by Aishia Fatima Haq. If you'd like to hear more of Aisha's mind-blowing recordings, we've got a playlist with a bunch of her stuff, as well as other music from the series. Just visit kcrw.com slash lost notes. And if this season has left you gasping for more, tell us how you feel by leaving a review on our Apple podcast page. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. The executive producer is Nick White. Thanks to Marion Hodges for production assistance. Lost Notes is made with support from KCRW's independent producer project. Our theme music is by Science Park. And until we meet again, I'm Solomon Giorgio, and this isn't the end. Oh wait, it actually is. Goodbye.